Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the Waves of the Voice of the Cape. If you just tuned in on 91.3 FM stereo, 89.8, 90.9, 95.8, and www.vsfm.co.za out in the World Wide Web. My name is Muhammad Fasih Peterson. I'll be with you for the next uh, two hours, inshallah. The first hour, of which is normally the VSC Top 10, but we set that aside tonight to bring you a very special and interesting discussion, inshallah. Uh, my guests in studio is, are, of course, Sheikh Fahruddin Uwaisi, Head of the Department of Islamic Studies. At IPSA, also lecture in Hadith at the Medina Institute, and then also Mona Ishad Sadiq from the Discovery Islam Center, and also lecture in Hadith at Darul Ulum Al Arabiya Al Islamiya, also known as uh, Darul Ulum in Strand. And of course, that tonight uh, we have a very interesting discussion. The discussion is looking at Hadith. Not many of us know exactly what a Hadith is, and we always hear quotations. We hear quotations being shared uh, from the pulpit and sometimes also on our WhatsApp, our Facebooks and Twitters people share hadiths and they quote sources. Tonight we'll be discovering exactly what hadith is and also looking at the authentication of the process of uh, the authentication process and also just le- learning a little bit more about the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, which are so valuable within our lives. So of course may first greet my honored guests Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the uh, studio this evening. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi well, of course, uh, I've obviously laid out the discussion there, so I think uh, first of all I'd like to turn my attention to Sheikh Fakhruddin this uh, evening. And the first question I want to ask is, uh, Sheikh, we know that um, there are many people who have come into the deen. Uh, who have embraced Islam for the first time and they're learning things <coughs> as they go along. And then also there are those people who have been uh, neglectful of the deen, people who have really embraced the study of our deen uh, as they should have. So the simplest thing sometimes eludes them. So one of the simple things is the understanding of what is a hadith. So that is my question, my first question this evening. What exactly is a hadith? What are we talking about when we speak about a hadith? Okay, alhamdulillah, salatu wassalamu ala Sayyidina Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahabihi wa nwala ma ba'ad. First of all, I greet the, the listeners. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuhu. Yes, hadith, uh, literally in Arabic, uh, hadith means talk, conversation, speech, uh, statement that's what literally hadith uh, means in Arabic uh, uh, but in our Islamic context uh, hadith refers to uh, sayings uh, of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam it also includes uh, actions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa that were narrated by his companions the Sahaba uh, and it also includes descriptions uh, or stories about the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, as narrated by his companions. So basically, um, sayings of the Prophet primarily, uh, as well as actions or descriptions of the Prophet sallallahu by his companions. Uh, simply put, that is what hadith uh, refers to. Um, also, uh, just a different way of looking at it for somebody who's uh, looking at it from a very academic point of view. One could also look at hadith as an historical record. Of exactly what Sheikh Fakhruddin has mentioned, a historical record of the Prophet's statements, actions, tacit approvals, descriptions that comes in the form of the actual text as well as the chain of narrators that leads from the Prophet and those who witnessed the action or the statement or the tacit approval and then takes it all the way down until it was recorded historically in such a way that we have it with us today. So it's both the statement as well as the chain of narration that is accompanied with that statement. 
Well, mashallah. I think uh, obviously that gives us a broad description of exactly what a hadith is. And but now I've heard this term narrators or chain of narrators. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the chain of narrators. Obviously, um, we th- this could be very broad. There were there were a lot of people who narrated hadith in the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But just take us through some of those key ones that stand out, and also exactly when we talk about chain of narration, how that has that has been preserved in through the generations. So, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, what happened was that the Prophet ﷺ, in his role as a Prophet, spent 23 years giving over the message of the Quran to the companions, but at that same time was also, you know, in the role of a teacher, in the role of one who was an exemplar who actually showed us how to implement the deen. And the Quran is clear of this. So if we speak about what does the Quran say regarding this, the Quran tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him as uh, somebody who yu'allimuhumul kitab wal hikmah wa yuzakki him. You know, he teaches them the book, he teaches them this thing called the hikmah, and he purifies them. And this role that the Prophet ﷺ played uh, was then recorded and witnessed by his companions, radiallahu anhum, witnessed by his family members, the Ahlul Bayt, radiallahu anhum, witnessed by his wives, the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, radiallahu anhum. And they would then, in the different capacities, transmit what they saw and what they heard and what they experienced with him to their students and this would then get passed on from person to person from memory to memory from heart to heart this would this message would then eventually form uh, through this chain as a chain of narrators now whilst some of them witnessed and experienced what they did with him sallallahu alaihi wasallam for their own personal benefit and they just looked at what he did and implemented it in their lives others among them uh, a select few from among them would actually go on and make this their career where they would focus the entire lives on transmitting what they witnessed from him sallallahu alaihi wasallam so just to give a very brief example Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu was his best friend sallallahu alaihi wasallam as well as his father-in-law and we find that he spent the most time with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but through all of that we don't find many hadith being narrated from him well if you look at why it's simply because he spent another two years after the Prophet passed on as the Khalifa being in charge of this major responsibility saving Islam from drowning with the kufr that was taking place at the time and he just simply didn't have that career of narrating hadith but as an individual he implemented everything he saw heard and experienced with the Prophet whereas others for example Sayyidina Abu Huraira who was only about two to three years with the Prophet his last year but spent his entire life collecting and narrating and transmitting whatever he witnessed and whatever he took from others who witnessed and made that his mission in life to keep alive the blessed life of the Prophet This is just to give an idea of how this developed. So if I can add to that, uh, Fasih, a chain of narrators basically is, uh, uh, that will take us now to where do we get our hadith from? You and me today, Mm -hmm. where do we get the hadith from? We basically get them from what you call the mother books. The mother books, the, the Ummahatul Kutub. These mother books were the books that were compiled from the first and the second centuries by great ulama of that time, in which they collected all the hadith that had reached them by that time, right? We're talking about now 1,200 years ago. So I give you one example how a chain of narration works. So one of the, the oldest mother book of hadith that we still have today that's preserved is the Muwatta of Imam Malik. Muwatta, name of the book by Imam Malik, a founder of the Maliki Mazhab. Imam Malik lived in Medina. He was born in the year 92, which means he was born 81 years after the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam passed away. 81 years, right? 
So he didn't meet the Prophet ﷺ, obviously. He also didn't meet any of his Sahaba. But he met the third generation. He met the Tabi'een. He met people who met the Sahaba. So uh, any normal hadith in his book, Muwatta, would go like this. Now the Muwatta is a book that we have today. Imam Malik writes, would write, uh, uh, narrate in his book, Muwatta, he would say, I narrate from my Ustad Nafi' who narrates, who narrated from his Ustad uh, Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu an, famous Sahabi, who heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa say. Right? Or Imam Malik would say, uh, I narrate from uh, my Ustad, Sheikh uh, Muhammad bin Shihab al-Zuhri, you know, uh, who narrated from Abu Huraira radiallahu an, who heard the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say. So uh, that is basically a chain of narration. So uh, that chain is now preserved for us. So that's what we call a chain of narration. So therefore, um, when we talk about Imam Malik, just to drift here for a moment, Imam Malik is actually of the Taibi Taibi. Yes. Subhanallah. Mashallah. So um, in, in, in putting to context this, and I think I'll, I'll just pose this question, but we'll go for ads, um, and we can just maybe think on this. Uh, as, we, as we reflect on the hadith, um, and obviously the authentication, I would like to sp- speak be- after the break around the authentication of the hadith, uh, because uh, we know that um, it's a huge task to collect uh, and compile the sayings of Rasulullah which was throughout the, 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 his lifespan from the time that he received the war, subhanAllah, uh, so, many, so many years to, 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 to take that information and I mean if, if I as a person every day of my life says something and people have to capture that's a lot and lot of information Ya Rasulullah receiving wahi and we know that he did not speak except that it came from, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so after the break I would just like to ask the question then how was, how was that uh, how process authenticated and how was that preserved to the point where we find today and obviously we spoke about the mother books but the chain of narration at the time before these books were compiled how were they preserved and how were they authenticated we'll take a look at that after this break live from Cape Town this is the voice of the Cape 91.3 FM Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to VSC 91.3 FM Stereo. And uh, we're still talking about a very important and very interesting topic. And this is, of course, hadith this uh, evening uh, between uh, 6 and uh, 7. Uh, I have in studio with me Sheikh Fakhruddin Uwaisi, head of the Department of Islamic Studies at IPSA, also lecturer in hadith at Medina Institute, and also Mona Ishan Siddiq, uh, he's with Discover Islam Center, as well as lecturer in hadith at Darul Ulum Al Arabiya Al Islamiya. And this program is designed to give us a better understanding of hadith and its application and also the roots uh, and how we uh, how we also look at had- how we are supposed to look at hadith in this context and I-, I think before the break we asked the question with regard to hadith and its authentication and um, we know that this is a ma- mammoth task and again if we look back in the history of Islam we really have to uh, take our if, for lack of a better word take ads off to people and really honor those people who subhanallah spent their lives collecting the hadith and um, Preserving it so that do we today as Muslims so many centuries later can benefit from it But uh, um, Sheikh Fakhruddin if we talk about authentication of hadith especially before the time that these books were compiled um, How how was that? How how were the how was that? Uh, preserved how was the hadith a particular hadith preserved from one Sahabi to the next or from one Sahabi to the Tabi'een to the Tabi Tabi'een How how was that process preserved? Well, it was preserved in the same way the Qur'an was preserved, uh, which is memorization. 
As you know, the Arabs uh, were an illiterate nation, generally speaking. So their oral uh, faculties, you know, uh, and the oral tradition was very strong. Uh, they were a nation who would memorize a lot, and their memories were uh, way better than anything we have today. So uh, it's obvious that Arabs uh, who memorized thousands of couplets of poetry uh, would memorize whatever they can remember from their Prophet ﷺ. He was their inspiration. They gave their lives for him. They went to war for him. Uh, they spent their entire lives trying to follow his example. So it's only logical to believe that people like that who loved him so much uh, would definitely remember or try to remember as much as they can of his words and sayings. Right? Even today, yeah, with our own teachers, we find, you know, you find the shiuch saying, oh, my sheikh used to say, my ustad used to say, my father used to say. Uh, we, we do that with learned people that we look up to even today, right? You always remember their sayings. So what about the generation that actually lived with the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? How would they not remember what he taught them and said? So, yes, so uh, they memorized all these things. Uh, they remembered all these things. And naturally, the generation that came into Islam after that, um, the first question they would ask any Sahabis, can you tell me more about the Nabi? If I meet the Sahaba, that's the question I'm going to ask them, right? Or can you tell me more about what you saw, what you heard, you know, and share me the wisdom? So in that way, uh, the generation of the Sahaba, we have like 100,000 people that are included in that generation. Uh, they narrated thousands of these narrations and stories and uh, anecdotes and sayings of the Prophet to the next generation. And they memorized these things and they held it close to them as dear life. And then they taught it to the next generation. And by that generation, which is the Taba'at Taba'in's time, you find uh, scholars now compiling these and putting them down in books. Uh, even though, even in the generation of the Sahaba and the Taba'in, there were people who used to write them down. Even Abu Hurairah, for example, he had students who would actually not only memorize the statements they heard from him, of the Nabi Sallallahu but they would write them down as well. Mm. Uh, like Humam. And even amongst the Sahaba, to give an example, there was this famous Sahabi Abdullah bin Amr bin Al-As, and he would uh, have a, he had a notebook where he would write down what he would hear from the Nabi Sallallahu That's why even in Sayyidina Abu Bakr's time, when he told some of the people to uh, burn uh, some of their things that they had, uh, just shows you that they actually used to write down many of the things they used to hear from the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's how it was basically uh, compiled and transmitted generation after generation. Uh, but then after that, the scholars developed a very strong uh, method of verifying what is sahih and what is not sahih, what is reliable and not reliable. And maybe Mawlana Rashad can shed some more light on the conditions for, uh, you know, categorizing a hadith or rating a hadith mm. as authentic sahih. Now, um, firstly, the, the idea of, you know, the, the writing legacy being a relied upon legacy is taking one culture and superimposing it on another. To us today, if something isn't written down, then we don't trust it because we don't rely on each other's memories. I always tell my students of Hadith that if we had absolutely no record of writing taking place in that time, it wouldn't do a single thing on the preservation of Quran and Sunnah because they had a greater reliance on the memory than on writing. You have to know that writing at the time was very rudimentary. It wasn't the Arabic that we know today. There was no Kasras, there was no Fathas, there was no Dhammas. The letters looked very similar So if you didn't have it memorized before it was written You wouldn't be able to read it And that's the bottom line Writing developed further on So people don't have to be you know, misled by thinking that Because something wasn't written down mm -hmm. That is the equivalent of our broken telephone It's 
it's completely uh, chalk and cheese. And um, the whole idea of authentication then, you know, the idea of why we have a sanad, a, a chain of narratives in the first place, the tabi'een actually tell us, they say we never used to ask one another about um, the chain of narration. We never used to ask one another until fitna started taking place. And when fitna started taking place, people now started wanting to fabricate. And because people started wanting to fabricate, to espouse their own beliefs and their own political views, then we started becoming very, very serious. And we started asking, tell us who your narrators are. And because they started this legacy, they were then very critical of who the narrators were, accepting from those whom they knew and trusted and not accepting from those whom they didn't. This then continued and developed into a solid science that is now known as the science of Ilm al-Rijal and Jarh al-Ta'adil, where today we can look at a chain of narrators and each and every single one of those narrators have entire biographies written about them. So if any of us wanted to find out something about who we are taking this hadith from, we don't have just a paragraph or a line written about those narrators, but paragraphs, lines, uh, books, volumes, and even encyclopedias written about them. This is how we verify. Um, just to sum it up, one of my favorite Western scholars of hadith, uh, Muslim by the name of uh, Dr. Jonathan Brown he has a beautiful way of expressing it he says there's a three-tiered approach for authentication number one does it have an isnad in other words does it have a chain of narrators number two can it be verified can it be uh, you know corroborated with other evidence and number three basically looking at who is in that chain of narrators to see if we can trust them and with this three-tiered approach we can authenticate or invalidate any narration not just accepting everything now, obviously, um, when we talk about the authentication process uh, again, but then looking at um, the classification of hadith, um, we've heard about Sahih, we've heard about Mansukh. Talk to us, uh, Sheikh Akhredin, around, around these terms and what exactly they mean and how they are applied within the uh, within the uh, understanding of, of hadith. Yeah, you know, there's a misconception that uh, whatever anybody claims is a hadith, everybody has to accept it. You know, it's not really like that. Uh, the ulama of hadith they uh, rate a hadith uh, according to how they narrate it. So a hadith is you know uh, rated as how it's narrated. So there are basically four categories of ratings for hadith uh, that are given. Uh, the basic ones. The one is the first one is sahih, uh, which you can say as uh, very authentic. And then you have the next one is hasan, which you can call it semi-authentic, like a kind of authentic. It's close to authentic. Uh, then you have uh, da'if, which is uh, weak, a weak hadith, you know, it's unreliable. Uh, and then you have uh, what we call mawdur, which is fabricated, a lie. So the difference between weak and uh, fabricated is that with weak, uh, we are basically saying that this hadith is unreliable. The people who narrated this are not reliable people. There are problems with this hadith. Uh, but we can't say for sure that it's a lie also. Uh, while when it, with Maudur, the fabricated hadith, we can tell you for sure, we can confirm that this is a fabrication, it's a lie. Uh, it, it might be somebody else's statement that people are falsely attributing to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or uh, somebody just made it up and attributed it to the Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So these are the, the four main categories. When it comes to Sahih, how do you know a hadith is Sahih? Uh, there are five conditions I'll run through very quickly. Um, the first is you have to see that every single narrator in that chain of narration is a upright and pious and reliable narrator from you know from a taqwa point of view so he wouldn't lie somebody who you can't suspect of being a liar uh, secondly every single one of those narrators should also have a very good memory 
So if one of them is pious, but he is accused of having a weak memory or he mixed up stuff and he became old, he couldn't remember stuff anymore, then we don't take that hadith. It won't be authentic anymore. They all have to have had good memories. Thirdly, every single narrator in the hadith must have met the person he claims to narrate from. So if you say, Fasik says, my grandfather used to say this and this, I'm going to first check out, did you actually even met your grandfather? Mm-hmm. If I found out you never met your grandfather, he died before you, your time, then that's a weak hadith. So every narrator, when he claims to narrate from somebody, we need proof that they actually met. Then fourthly, uh, the wording of the hadith itself, uh, there shouldn't be any, uh, it, first of all, it shouldn't contradict other authentic narrations. So maybe you are a very reliable narrator uh, person, Fasir, and you tell me something, and I believe it. But if you tell me something, and three other reliable people tell me the same thing differently, then I'm going to take their word and not your one, because three is uh, more reliable than one. So the hadith must not be contradicted by more authentic narrations on the same thing. And finally, uh, it shouldn't have any subtle defects, which means uh, which means that uh, there shouldn't be any issues that ulama still pick up in the hadith. Because even after all this uh, process of authentication, the ulama might still pick up something. For example, uh, the hadith, uh, in the hadith, the Prophet is... Uh, uh, apparently is using a word that was never used in his time. That was only used uh, in the Arabic language 100 years or 200 years after his time. So the ulama will pick that up and say the Prophet couldn't have said that, sallallahu So this is probably uh, a slip up from one of the narrators when they narrated something in their own words. So that if they picked something like that up, then immediately the hadith cannot be called sahih anymore. It becomes weak or something, right? So if, but if it fulfills these five conditions, then we classify that hadith as sahih, as authentic. And also just on the point of weak hadith, um, uh, we understand that a weak hadith is a hadith that um, there, is, there is speculation in terms of its, its uh, authenticity. But when, when is a had weak hadith then used uh, in, 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 in terms of um, saying that we can use this hadith even though it is weak? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So generally the scholars follow the precedent set by a great muhaddith Ibn Hajr al-Asqalani rahimahullah ta'ala. One of the, uh, one of the commentaries of Sahih al-Bukhari is known as Fathul Bari, the best of the commentaries. He's the author of that and also great scholars of hadith. So he laid down the conditions that if you want to, if you find that the hadith is weak, there are conditions with regards to using it. Number one, it must not be very weak. So the weakness must be of a light nature. So not uh, a person who was guilty of lies or fabrications or suspected of lies, but perhaps somebody who used to make mistakes now and then. So it mustn't be very weak. Number two, that hadith must be espoused by a general precedent in the Quran and Sunnah already. It can't be bringing something new and establishing something new. And then number three, that the uh, hadith must only be used or can only be used in the framework of things that have already been encouraged as good, this hadith can then be used to encourage it further. So for example, if a hadith is talking about the virtues of, of a certain deed, you know, it's good to fast on a Monday and a Thursday. We all know that from established sunnah. So if you find another hadith that's perhaps not authentic, but it's also just saying that to fast on a Monday and a Thursday is a good thing because you'll get XYZ reward, but it's not authentic, we can still use that particular hadith to encourage the fasting of the Monday and the Thursday because it's not very weak, it falls under general precedent of the Sharia, and it's simply just encouraging a, uh, an, a practice that is under the scope of virtues of deeds. But never ever will scholars allow the usage of weak hadith in belief or in law. It's just not allowed. right? And, and these uh, technicalities that the scholars have come up with, 
it might sound very, very complicated and complex for the listener out there. And I'm sure that there's somebody that might even be thinking, you know, why go into all those technicalities when we can just follow the Quran? And the Quran is a clarification of everything. Why do we even need to go to these words where there's a possibility of mistakes, where there's a possibility of fabrication? This science has been laid down by the scholars in order to eradicate all forms of fabrication and any discrepancy so that we know exactly what we are following and if anybody wants to be more curious about how this works and whether we can actually follow it up all that is necessary to do is simply uh, learn the science and we will find that it is actually very reliable and about the whole thing about the Quran you know follow the Quran the Quran is the book of God why do we need anything else the Quran explains everything this is a topic in and of itself but it suffice to say that if you say, I only listen to Mr. A, and then you go to Mr. A and you take everything Mr. A says, and then Mr. A tells you, well, you also have to listen to Mr. B. Then you're forced to listen to Mr. B. If you're true to listening to only Mr. A, you also have to now listen to Mr. B. The Quran is exactly this. The Quran in so many places that it would be impossible for us to enumerate here tonight tells us to follow the Prophet ﷺ, listen to the Prophet ﷺ, take what the Prophet ﷺ gives you, stay away from what he prohibits you from, obey him, implement his way of life, um, listen to what he says, listen to his teachings. So how then can we say we're following the Qur'an without following the teachings of the Prophet ﷺ? It would be practically impossible. I'll give you one simple example of that, uh, Faseer. Uh, when we say only Qur'an, you know, uh, the names of the surahs of the Qur'an, right? They are not mentioned in the Quran itself. You know? So who gave these names? And where do they come from? <laughs> so those names were all given by the Prophet So if you say the Quran as everything and you don't need anything from outside of the Quran, then even the naming of the surahs of the Quran uh, came from outside. So one cannot separate the Messenger of Allah from the Book of Allah. He was the living Quran, the living tradition, the living implementation of the Quran. And Hadith is simply the preservation of the records, as Mawlana said, of his lifestyle and his sayings and his explanations of the Quran and the Quran itself says about itself يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابِ and Allah said, I send my Prophet to you in Surah Al-Jum'ah يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ والحكمة, I have sent my Prophet to you so that he may teach you the book so the Prophet was sent to teach the book so the hadith is then that teaching of the book it is not something separate uh, mm. from the book Now Sheikh Fakhri then also then, then uh, uh, latching on to that um, when, we, when we look at um, the hadith and the Quran as we've mentioned there are people who say let's follow just the Quran and not the hadith um, because they are skeptic uh, for, some, for, for whatever reason then the question is um, if we look at the commandments within the Quran towards specific things within Islamic jurisprudence. There are commandment, commandments there. However, the practicality doesn't that not come from the Sunnah in order to physically practice like for instance the concept of wudu, the concept of salah. Salah is, is it, it is an order, it is, it, is, it is found to be in the Quran as an instruction. However, the mode of salah, where do we draw that from? Yeah. Azan, for example. Uh, where is the azan mentioned in the Quran? Shahada. Yeah, how does the Quran, uh, does the Quran explain to you how to perform Salatul Janaza? You know, how does the Quran explain to you how to ghusl a mayyit? Uh, you know, does the Quran explain to you the difference between hajj and umrah in detail? So these things are not there, but mm. these are all in the walking Quran, which is Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So uh, one cannot do that. But what I found out, uh, what I've realized is the problems people have here is not really uh, with the hadith as such. It's usually, uh, usually people read up a couple of hadith uh, which they then personally find difficult to accept. Mm for whatever reasons, and then they want to deny the entire science of hadith because mm. of this one hadith that I find difficult to accept. 
And just I was saying the other day, somebody was telling me, uh, for example, there is a hadith where, uh, uh, where the Prophet ﷺ said in the narrated in Bukhari that Adam ﷺ was 60 feet tall. And this is nonsense and this is impossible for a man to be so tall and... Uh, I, uh, that's why we should only follow the Quran. Mm. So I told the brother, well, the Quran says Nabi Nuh Islam lived for nine, more than 950 years. So what do you say about that now? Are you going to deny the Quran also now? Mm. So uh, some of the reasonings here for which people are applying to deny Hadith, if you really apply those reasonings honestly, you're going to end up denying the Quran as well. Yes. You say that Hadith says uh, prescribes a punishment that is so cruel. But then you go to the Quran, you find the Quran is prescribing the same punishment. No. So then you deny the Quran also then. No. So they got personal problems, you know. Yes. Uh, and in theory, it sounds very nice, you know, just follow Quran. That's pure Islam, just the book of Allah, nothing else. We only follow Quran. Most of the people saying that have never read the Quran from cover to cover, so they don't know what the Quran entails and what it doesn't because they'd be very surprised to find out how much of the deen which they practice is not to be found in the Quran. If I bow in, in salah, you know, what do I say in ruku? What do I say in sujood? Why must I start with the takbiratul ihram? Why do I start with that dua that I started? None of that is in the Quran. The fact that I must recite suratul fatiha in salah in every rakah, that's not in the Quran. So people will be very shocked and surprised as to how much of the deen that we know is not to be found in the Quran in detail. The Quran says make salah and that's about it and then the Quran says follow the Prophet وسلم, which we then do so it becomes very nice as a theory to think about you know this puritanical type of thing and many people do it in different capacities some say only Quran some then go further and say only Quran and Sunnah and you know but it's always an oversimplification of a matter that has been derived that has been built that has been basically formulated by our scholars over a period of 1400 years so what they're actually saying is let's flash down 1400 years of scholars and academics and start over and make up our own thing as we go along it's actually uh, it comes down to that as absurd as i'm putting it but that is what it comes down to at the end of the day some even go as far as saying we don't find the details of the of salah for example in the quran or wudu or the shahada or the adhan no that's a living tradition you know we take that on from our forefathers Others, we learnt it from them and then we carry on. This is the claim that is made. Um, but even then there are mazahib, Mawlana. Yes. So if yes. your tradition is Shafi'i, your living tradition of performing Salah is the Shafi'i way. Yes. But the Maliki will mm. say our way so and the Hanafi. So which one is it? And yes. all of them will use Hadith then. Yes. So uh, the idea that it's a living tradition doesn't uh, really uh, solve the problem. And, and also, uh, once again, if we look at our forefathers, perhaps some of them had mistakes. They, they learned perhaps incorrectly. So if we're taking a yes. tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation, and we're taking all the mistakes, and with, yeah. all the mistakes with us, where yeah. we have a record that has existed for 1400 exactly, years, exactly. Uh, that, that, that is, is, is a, a subject to a process of authentication. Yes. Yeah. And, and 300 years ago, Islam was new in Cape Town. So uh, which tradition people to take from there that's why we're following the Shafi Mother because it came from Indonesia so you know this is absurd and then also another thing is uh, as, as, as Manad mentioned uh, the, the instruction to obey Allah and obey the Rasul um, obviously how do you obey the Rasul if you don't know the life of the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> and the same people who narrate the Quran are the people who narrated the Hadith mm. the Sahaba gave us not the Quran and they gave us the Hadith so are you gonna tell the Sahaba it's like the Tabi'een now telling the Sahaba uh, you taught me the Quran now, uh, Abu Huraira or Abu Bakr or Ali 
or Bilal. But thank you very much. Don't teach me anything after that. I don't want anything else. No. So uh, the Sahaba taught their, their students Quran and they taught them the Sunnah. Yes. And yes. these traditions have both come down to us. Yes, there are weak hadiths. There yes. are fabrications. There are hadiths that are problematic, even mm. authentic ones. Uh, and there are different ways of looking at it. Mm. You know, like some like the hadith of the 60 feet. Some ulama said, well, that was the size of Adam al-Islam in Jannah. Mm. But later on, it's fine. How you interpret it, we can argue about that. But to come and say that, look at one or two hadiths and say these are problematic, throw and the therefore you're going to throw the entire hadith. Mm. People have done that with the Quran also. It's people have come and said there's an ayah in the Quran that says you can hit your wife, for example, mm. and that's a very big discussion. Uh, and therefore, I reject the whole Quran. Yes. So you can't simplify it like that. I think. I think on that note, we're going to have to break away for the work of Maghrib, inshallah. When we come back, hopefully we can continue. We're talking about uh, hadith and understanding it a little bit more in this context uh, this evening with uh, our guests, uh, none other than Sheikh Fahrid in the way, head of the Department of Islamic Studies at IBSA and lecturing hadith at Medina Institute. And then also uh, Mawlana Shah Siddiq, Discovery Islam Center. He's the head of Discovery Islam Center as well as the lecture in hadith Darulum Al-Arabiya Al-Islamiyya. I've got that name right, alhamdulillah. We're going to go for a break. We'll be back after this. Live from Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape. The voice of the Cape. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back. It's uh, 30 minutes after 7. I'm still in studio with the Manash Shad Siddiq. He is the head of Discovery Islam Center and was a lecturer in Hadith Darul Ulum Al Arabiya Al Islamiya. Sheikh Fakhruddin Nawaisi, who was with us before the break, he unfortunately has another appointment, so he had to leave us. Uh, but we say shukran so much for his participating. Alhamdulillah, learned a lot from his from our interactions with him. Now, uh, Manash Shad is still with me, and Manash, uh, obviously, we've been speaking about Hadith before the break. We spoke about the authentication process. We spoke about the uh, ca- characterization of hadith. And uh, now, now one thing we want to speak about is obviously there are people within our community, in society, and globally also, who have criticisms of hadith, and um, they will they will they will look at a particular hadith out of context, and then draw conclusions upon that. Sheikh, give us some examples, maybe, of certain scenarios where people might. Uh, and misunderstand the hadith and interpret it in a literal sense and then by virtue of that uh, not being able to re- arrive at a point where uh, where they can reconcile. No. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, firstly, I think it's important to get an understanding of why. Why do people have a problem with hadith? I found, um, Allah A'lam, that in my, my short experience, um, there are two groups of people. The one, you know, is the group that have that hasn't really studied hadith, doesn't really know the length and breadth of um, the science itself. What's available in terms of the science of narrators and narrator criticism, sharh and ta'adil and ilmur rijal and mustalah and so forth, and the application of those sciences. And then two is another group of people who perhaps know, but they have. Uh, certain alternative you know uh, ulterior motives basically so if you approach the Quran and you want to make uh, homosexuality permissible for example um, you could perhaps twist and turn and interpret and eventually from the Quran alone you don't have such a big challenge but in hadith we find the details of everything so they we don't just find the general rule and the law, we find it in detail along with the consequences and so forth. So if somebody wants to have that type of ulterior motive, then the first thing they have to do is get hadith out of the way. And this is generally what they do is by negating all hadith or hadith as a concept. So these are the two groups that uh, that I've, I've come across um, as, a, as a student of hadith and teacher of hadith. The one again, uh, people who 
uh, have never really studied hadith, so they come up with their own conclusions by reading one or two things. And the other group, they have ulterior motives. They need to achieve their goal by negating hadith and therefore having it out of the way. That's the first thing uh, that I wish to say. You know, why do they actually reject hadith? Some of the specific things, the most common things that we hear. Um, I think the one thing that everybody mentions first, all the critics and all the uh, naysayers of hadith, they say hadith is something that only came about 300 years after the demise of the Prophet ﷺ. How can you trust something that only came about uh, so late? Again, you know, pick up a book. Um, this has been discussed in, academic, in academics and in academia for many, many, many years. Um, any book on hadith would explain this. There was, as we've been discussing before, Maghrib, um, an entire tradition of oral and oral transmission. Um, this was the legacy of the 7th century Arabs at the time. They had this with them. Allah has gifted them with this ability to retain not just their lineage, but the lineage of their camels and their horses, um, lines and lines of poetry. So we we know for sure that they actually memorized something from the Prophet from Allah, from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then they pass that on. This is not uh, an assumption. This is not broken telephone. We can actually check and verify because we find not just one companion narrating something, but a number of them. Not just one tabi'i narrating something, but a number of them. Thus, espousing each other's uh, veracity, you know, becomes built up over mm -hmm. a number of different uh, transmissions. So we know that. Um, then the other issue is this... Uh, 300 years then where does this come in why do they say 300 years there is something that happens about 200 to 300 years after the demise of the prophet sallallahu alaihi and that is that the khalifa umar ibn abdul aziz he feels that at this time the memories of people is no longer as reliable as they used to be in the times before and we should now do something to physically write down uh, communal collections and others collections for the entire community to benefit from with all the available hadith and write them down and he then gives this command to the likes of uh, Muhammad ibn Muslim ibn Ubaidillah ibn Shahbaz Zuhri um, to, to scholars of the caliber of, of you know this great muhadith and others who were close to the Umayyads at that time to officially from a government point of view compile the hadith so they were commissioned by the government of the time to compile the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and yes this took place 200 to 300 years after the demise of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam did they now make it all up at that time? Most definitely yeah. not. They were collectors and compilers, that's it. But they all had these ahadith readily available with them. There's an entire genre of hadith literature that took place before this time. It's called the Sahifa. The Sahifa were personal copies, personal manuscripts of the Sahaba, of the Tabi'een, with their writings of hadith. As we said before, the majority of them didn't rely too much on their writing, but rather on their, on their memory. Writing was a rudimentary thing. They couldn't even read these sahifas unless they had memorized them first. But they were, in fact, sahifas. A sahifa is a small little scroll or compilation of hadith, and we know they existed. The Prophet had letters written, didn't he? And he sent mm. them out to various governors. The Prophet had measurements written out for zakah, measurements written out for inheritance, measurements written out for various things um, that he gave to different uh, people who were responsible for those departments. And there is evidence of these things existing. So when people say that hadith only came about 200 to 300 years after the Prophet that is a lie it was officially written down at that time but it most definitely existed 
all the time up till that time and there's a big difference between the two now obviously when we say that um the, the tradition of writing down states back before that 300 year period that yes. uh, some people are disputing um when we look at the uh, when we look at the uh, again the tradition of rasulullah we spoke about the writing of letters at the time there were sahaba who were assigned who were literate Yes. To be able to take upon themselves to perform these tasks. Yes. However, the issue of illiteracy within society, perhaps I would imagine it was for the wealthy, the well-off, for those people who had access to certain resources to mm. be able to read and write. Subhanallah, so for the most part, people memorized or they learnt through memorization and through um, oral, uh, or through 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 a narration, they learnt this. They, they learnt uh, what they knew. Subhanallah. As as opposed to what we today look at, as we learn from books and we memorize from books. Yes. And today our me- memory is not that strong because that's not part of our tradition. Yes, it's not, and we can't superimpose our culture on these. One of the Sahaba, you know, a saying comes into mind. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Al-As, he says that I used to write down everything that came from the mouth of the Prophet He actually said that. And then he says, until the Quraysh, they started criticizing him and saying, you know, are you writing down the words of this man who becomes angry and, you know, becomes... In other words, he was affected by his emotions. So he's mm-hmm. a human being. So the words you're writing down, how can these be holy words when they are the words of a man? This was mm-hmm. the. Then he said he, he paused because he was now unsure. Then he went to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and the Prophet sallam, told him, "Write, for verily nothing comes out of this except the truth." And he pointed to his tongue. Allah. Right. So we have this. We also have the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam prohibiting some Sahaba from writing because some people will say that you know here's evidence that uh, you, you're not supposed to write down. He said, "Don't write down if you wrote down anything." from me other than the Quran erase it he said that so there are discussions scholarly discussions about how this works out um, to basically uh, make a long story short it's a matter of initially when people were very much uh, occupied with establishing the Quran there were very few scribes he didn't want people to be focused on anything else except the Quran later on when the Quran was very much established there were more scribes he then allowed certain companions to write down other than the Quran he didn't want to get the, the Quran and the Sunnah confused So if you're writing down and he's busy narrating Quran And then in between he explains something Then you write down the explanation as well I come across that same writing I don't know the difference between the Quran and the explanation Because it's not in books like we have it today So there are discussions around this And if anybody has doubts or questions I would urge them, I would absolutely say You know, come, come around Buy a book um, if you don't trust Islamic scholars Some people say No, the Islamic scholars They just make up their own thing Because they want you to believe Their version of things Then how about trying The academic works around this Because they say the same thing History is history And fact remains fact So, um, you know From all sides Dr. Uh, Dr. Mustafa Sibai writes Sunnah wa makanatuha It's translated as Sunnah and its role in Islamic legislation This will answer anybody's dispute out there With regards to uh, the, the reservations about hadith Another book that they might want to pick up is um, Hadith, Muhammad's Legacy in the Medieval and Modern World By uh, Dr. Jonathan A.C. Brown of um, of the United States of America These are scholars in their own rights I gave you one from the Islamic tradition One from the more Western tradition And you know the same conclusions Exactly what we are saying here um, Hadith and it's writ- You know the fact that it was written down Did happen, we don't dispute that um, But what we are saying is that it wasn't written down like in an, in an encyclopedia for everybody to see until two to three hundred years after the Prophet's demise. Then official writing was now taking place. Um, 
you know, commissioned by the government so as to have a preservation of his legacy for all time to come. And that's what we have today. So Alhamdulillah that they did that. And I hope that this would have clarified the whole idea of hadith only came about after so many years. SubhanAllah. Uh, we're going to go for a break now. When we come back, we continue. I'm still with Mona uh, with Mona Ishad Siddiq, and we're speaking about the, the the topic today is hadith. And uh, so far, Alhamdulillah, I've learned so much around uh, hadith and its application within Islam. When we come back, we'll continue and we get some more of that. Stay tuned. Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, ninety-one point three FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to VOC 91.3 FM Studio. It's uh, 7.27 on the Voice of the Cape and uh, I'm in studio with uh, Mona Irshad Sadiq. Uh, before uh, the Waqt of Maghrib we had with Ashik Fahreddin Nawaisi and uh, the discussion this evening has been around hadith and uh, uh, we're looking at um, hadith in this context and understanding uh, this you know, the, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu how they impacted our lives now we understand them in the context of Quran of Quran versus Sunnah. And when we say versus Sunnah, it's not that that is in conflict. We learn from the Quran and we live from the Sunnah as, and we spoke before, the, before in a previous segment about how the Quran and the Sunnah uh, are in essence, um, if you, for instance, we talk about Salah, we talk about the instruction of Salah, but the Hadith gives you the practical of Salah. Rasulullah gives us the practical of what the instruction in the Quran is. So hence, um, subhanAllah, already from that perspective, it makes us feel comfortable and understand uh, that there is no conflict. But now, obviously, um, in, in, in the misinterpretation of Hadith sometimes, mm. uh, we find people taking a very literal root, a very literal meaning of what a Hadith is saying. So, uh, Take us through perhaps some misconceptions around certain hadith that people might have which in their minds would cause a conflict with the concept of what the Qur'an is saying. Okay, khair. So what, what's going to happen is that if one is familiar with, with the Qur'an, right, generally, um, one would know that there's about 300 to 500 verses in the entire Qur'an that deals with ahkam, that deals with law, actual law. And if you think about that, you know, with the 6,000 odd verses in the Qur'an, that's quite a little, right? So where is it that we get volumes and volumes of fiqh from? So now what happens is somebody might read a verse of the Qur'an. And then, uh, because it's very, very general or vague in its, in its purport, somebody then sees a hadith that says something somewhat different and then the person thinks, ah, contradiction, let's throw out this thing. It doesn't make sense. So some of the examples are that the Quran would say, Ya ladina amanu idha nudiya lissalati min yawmil jumu'ati fas'au ila dhikri allahi wa dharul bay' thalikum khayrul lakum in kuntum ta'lamun. You know, O oh believers, when the call of Jumu'ah is made, then hasten towards the remembrance of Allah, leave of all trade. So then somebody might say, ah, you see, the Quran says, O oh believers. But then the hadith mentions that it's not compulsory for women to go to the masjid because their homes are better for them, so it's only compulsory for the, for the males. So somebody says, you see the, uh, there's gender equality because the Quran says everyone and then the hadith says uh, only the males. So let's analyze this for a second. Does the Quran say everyone? If you say yes, so. Does it include uh, the non-Muslims as well? Because apparently the Quran says, Ya amanu, O believers, believers in what? Um, that's not mentioned there. Uh, okay, so if you say no, that is understood believers in Allah and His Messenger, fine. So it says all the believers, that includes men, women, children, babies, 
um, the elderly, those who are bedridden, those who are ill, every single person must come to Jumu'ah, no matter what, because there's no exception in that particular verse. And then, of course, the, the hadith will tell us that there are exceptions. For example, the hadith tells us that the person who is unable to do something, rufi al-qalam, you know, the, the, the pen has been lifted from that person who forgets or is unconscious or makes a genuine mistake and so forth, um, that the, pen, the person is not held responsible. So, all of this type of contradictions will come out when? When there's a misunderstanding of the relationship between Quran and Hadith. Just another two examples. Um, fasting. The Quran says that uh, fasting has been prescribed for you. Right? So, so that you may attain taqwa and Allah consciousness. So someone says, uh, well you see the Hadith says that Man Ramadana imana Whosoever fasts in the month of Ramadan, believing in Allah and out of expectation of reward, that person's sins will be forgiven. He says, ah, there's a contradiction. Because the Quran says for taqwa and the hadith says for your sins to be forgiven. So that's a, <laughs> a contradiction. An interesting thing there, Maulana, is when we say that someone's sins is being forgiven, obviously he's on his path to taqwa, he's on his road to taqwa because he's asking Allah to be forgiven so that he can be in the pleasure of Allah. Yes. And taqwa is to have the consciousness of Allah. When he's asking for Allah for forgiveness, isn't he in a state of taqwa? Yes, of course. The first step of taqwa is ask forgiveness for your past, and then you move on to your future. Um, so there's absolutely no contradiction there. So let, let, let us define this, you know. We can go on the million examples. I mean, I have a few written down mm. there, for example, like stoning. Why do they stone somebody who commits zina when the Quran actually says lashes? The Quran is talking about those who committed zina without ever experiencing a halal marriage. And the hadith is talking about those who commit zina after experiencing a halal marriage. So it's two completely different mm-hmm. things. But nonetheless, we can go on and on and on about the examples. Let me just explain the actual relationship between Quran and hadith, which will clarify everything, inshallah. So Imam Shafi'i offers a succinct description of the manner in which the sunnah could actually affect the interpretation of the Quran. Number one, the Prophet ﷺ could demonstrate that the meaning of a general Quranic verse was more specific than it appeared right so in the Quran something is mentioned generally then the Prophet comes and explains it's more specific than what you think for example the Quran states that the thief male or female cut off their hands in the retribution for what they have done as an exemplary, uh, an exemplary punishment from God then uh, the hadith tells us that Sayyida Aisha anha says the Prophet told us that the hand should not be cut off for somebody uh, of somebody who's to stole an item whose value is less than a quarter dinar. So a dinar is a gold coin that's approximately, um, well, uh, well, we can work out what the price of gold is right now. So a quarter gold coin. So if the value is less than that, then you don't cut with that person's hand. That's not mentioned in the Quran. But the hadith comes and specifies, don't just go and cut off people's hands in the sharia now because they stole a slice of bread or something like that. And also if we look at that, uh, it's in, in analyzing that sometimes people steal for the need in terms of poverty not that it is right but yes. they steal because they have no other means of feeding themselves and feeding their children yes. so Islam is there not to punish those people yes, but exactly. rather, rather to correct their action exactly so um, you see what you're mentioning is the hadith comes around and caters for such uh, such sentiments now it's not for us to say it's because of this and because of that the hadith clarifies it but if you were to only take the Quran then a person who steals a piece of string from your garment that person's hand must be cut off you know so so that's the, num- the number one thing that the, the relationship is between hadith and Quran. Hadith comes to clarify what the Quran mentions in a general way. The Sunnah also clarified ambiguous or vague Quranic commands. The Quran orders Muslims to pray, isn't it? Aqimu yeah. salah, wa atu zakah, give zakah. How much zakah must I give? 
all of my money, half of my money, the Quran says, Kutiba alaykum uh, fasting has been prescribed for you. So that means I can never eat again because I need to fast. It doesn't say exactly how, what, my, what I must stay away from, what I must do, how I must do it. And we can't come and say, you know, this we learn from our mothers and our fathers and their mothers and their fathers, the living tradition. Because if we are not willing to accept all of the living tradition, then that's a problem. For example, if if I just may, um, somebody uh, could say that, you know, I don't accept the stoning, right? Because the stoning isn't mentioned in the Quran. You're following me? Yes. So I will only accept that which is mentioned in the Quran. So I ask the person, so where do you get your, your salah from? You know, what? how many rakats to, to, to read in salah? The, why do you recite five salahs a day instead of three or two or one? It's not mentioned in the Quran. I say, no, it's a living tradition. So I say, well, the living tradition also says that you must stone somebody to death if they committed zina. Uh, before wedlock or rather in wedlock right so why don't you take that part of the living tradition so there's a major contradiction mm-hmm. there what you see here is selective uh, selective perception taking what suits one and leaving off the other things right so it must be clarified what exactly is the relationship between the Quran and the Sunnah we only have two things thus far the Sunnah clarifies the general of the Quran and it explains the ambiguous of the Quran there's two more the Sunnah is also there to Tell us which parts of the Qur'an have been abrogated or to abrogate some parts of the Qur'an. So, for example, a verse might have been, uh, you know, the law at one particular stage. The sunnah then comes and explains, no, that's no longer the law. The law is different. Or the other way around, there might have been a sunnah to say it's the law and the Qur'an comes and says it's not the law any longer. But the verse is still there. For example, the issue of... Uh, of drinking, there's abrogation that takes place there, even though it be in the Quran itself. And then the last thing that the Sunnah does is uh, adds to the law of the Quran. The Quran says we cannot marry um, our mothers, we cannot marry our uh, sisters, our daughters, or aunts, with the corresponding male relationships for women implied as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Saying that other women besides these are permissible. But then the Hadith comes and says that a man cannot marry a woman and her aunt at the same time. Right? So this is not in the Quran, but the Hadith added to it. So this is the relationship, generally speaking, that the Quran has with the Sunnah. And this is why the end result of you know, 1400 years of scholarship is the fiqh that we have today. Because scholars have sifted through all of this. You and I don't have to go out now, buy a translation Quran, buy all the books of Hadith and figure things out. That would be absolutely impossible for you know every single muslim to do but this has been done for us by the scholars and if we don't trust them because some people want to spur uh, you know mistrust or want to spur us you know to doubt our scholars then we just pick up a book and see if we believe in the methodology that has been followed subhanallah and once again for me it comes back to the concept of obeying allah and obeying the Rasul, which is a command in the quran is it not and yet um how do we obey our rasulullah except in what he said no and, uh, we that, we, we, and where is that captured? Is that captured in a living tradition or is that captured in the Sunnah which today still uh, uh, we use in order to understand the Quran and understand the Deen? And also, if we look at the Quran, subhanAllah, if, and we are taught that if we had used the sea as ink, we would not be able to scribe all the knowledge written in the Quran. Mm. So obviously, in the vastness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's word, obviously we need someone who is going to guide us and navigate us. Yes, absolutely. And that, that guide is Rasulullah Yes, um, the Quran, uh, rightfully said, contains the information of everything. Right, the Quran does contain the information of everything, but in what sense? If I were to ask you now, tell me what does the Quran say about baking a loaf of bread? What does the Quran say about uh, you know when I have to fix my car? 
right? So you're going to say, well, it doesn't say something specific about that. But the Quran does say, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask those who know if you don't know. So that's how the Quran covers everything. The Quran also says, make salah. So I ask, but the Quran doesn't tell me how to make salah. Then I say, well, the Quran does say, أَلْتِيُوا اللَّهَ وَأَلْتِيُوا الرَّسُولَ Obey Allah and obey the Messenger. The Quran also says uh, that Allah Ta'ala sent a Messenger, يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ To recite the verses. وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ To purify people. وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ To teach them the book and to teach them the wisdom. Which we interpret as the sunnah So even if we don't interpret that as the sunnah Which they might argue Then we say well to teach them the book So the teachings of the book Is actually from the Prophet So at the end of the day It comes down to this We would need the hadith Or the sunnah of the Prophet Regardless of whether we believe The veracity of hadith or not The the problem that we're sitting with is uh, there are some people who doubt the veracity of the hadith. So my question is then, where are you going to find your Islam? Because at the end of the day, that means that we are in serious trouble as Muslims. If we say that we don't have that source that Allah says we must go to, then that means we don't have Islam any longer. And the interesting thing about people such as those is that uh, they perform this Allah, they fast the month of Ramadan, they give the zakah, but now where do they get the dalil from? Absolutely, uh, uh, that's something that I would like to know so, as well. So, so it is, it's a very confused state to be in whereby one rejects the sunnah yet accepts it at the same time. Yes. Subhanallah. Um, so we, we, and, and once again, when we, when, we, when we expound on this, we understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the Quran and given us the sunnah as means for us to, to unlock uh, the sweetness of this deen, mm. and when I look at when I look at, for instance, um, the Quran. For me, as someone who is not a scholar, who is not educated, I am not qualified to go into the deeper meanings of the Quran. And um, so, therefore, I look at the Hadith, and through the Hadith, I get instruction. And even then, it's not for me to go into the deeper meanings of this. Mm. So we have scholars who have dedicated their lives to understanding both the Qur'an and the Sunnah and their relation to one another. So me as an ordinary person coming in, choosing and trying to shop around uh, like someone walking down in the aisles of a supermarket, all I'm going to do is mislead myself. Yes, of course. You see, from an academic point of view, you know, no one will do to another science what they do with Islamic law, so mm. to speak. Imagine I were to say that uh, there's somebody out there who took a medical uh, journal from... Uh, the 18th or the 17th century and he found something so profound in there and he's going with that even though after that particular journal came out the point that he has taken as the gospel truth has been nullified and completely thrown out of the water since then you would say that person is mad how can they go on with an old theory like that any person in their right mind would say this person's an imbecile for taking such an old theory that has already been rebutted. I mean, what scholarship for then? So this is exactly what people do over and over and over again when it comes to Islamic law. The same arguments that were made hundreds of years ago against hadith, against uh, Islam, against fiqh, against the madhahib, are the same arguments that are just regenerated over and over again. The, the counter-arguments are there. So we have to ask ourselves, honestly, we have to just look into the mirror or you know, look into our souls and ask ourselves, do I want to follow what I believe to be the truth simply because it's my belief? Or do I actually want to know the truth and then believe in it? Because this is a serious question. You know, it's one thing to say, well, this supports my belief and that supports my belief. Are you more interested in your belief becoming the truth? Or are you more interested in finding out what the truth is and then believing it? They are scholars. 
there's a legacy of works and a treasure of you know books and so forth and anybody who's interested we have no clergy in islam it's not just a certain group of men or so forth who can be privileged to this knowledge anyone man woman child who's interested in knowing more about the sciences around hadith the sciences which preserve the legacy of islam i welcome them and any scholar would welcome them to come and learn and you know just make yourself uh enriched with this legacy that we have the voice of Malay Shah Sadiq, we're in the program talking about hadith uh, this uh, evening. We're going to go for a break. When we come back, we'll be into the final segment. Stay tuned. Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Welcome back. Uh, we've uh, got a few more minutes, maybe four minutes in the program, and uh, I'm still in studio with Mona Shah Sadiq. Before the break for the Wakt of Maghrib, we were joined by Sheikh Fakhridin Nawaisi, Head of the Department of Islamic Studies at Isipsa, a lecturer in Hadith at Medina Institute. Uh, we say Sheikh and Tim for his contribution. Also, now, still with Mona uh, Ishad, uh, he's the Head of Discovery Islam Center, and he's been a lecturer, or he was a lecturer in Hadith at Darul Ulum al Arabiya al Islamiyah. And we've been speaking about Hadith, and now, um, obviously, when we spoke about uh, before the break, we were talking about the importance of understanding the uh, the, the misconceptions around hadith and how and how uh, we need to we need to look at the, the 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 difference between Quran and hadith and how they complement one another. But now also, we have to understand also the beauty that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has instilled in the Deen. Yes. Through the the, 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 the the coming of Rasulullah um, as an individual, as someone who is Rahmatulilalamin, mm. mercy unto mankind, Subhanallah, and we see this beauty that uh, coming through in the Hadith is not someone. No, definitely. I mean, number one, the Quran lays the the foundation and says, "Qul in kuntum tuhibun Allah, fatabi'uni yuhibbukum Allah, wa yaghfillakum zunubakum. Allahu ghafurur rahim." Say to them, O Muhammad sallallahu if you claim to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, follow me, then Allah will love you and he will forgive your sins. Allah ta'ala is the most forgiving, the most merciful. So that ittiba', you know, that fattabi'uni, ittiba', following the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's not just about the ahkam, it's not just about the fiqh. As we spoke, you know, this entire discussion, we were talking about the relationship between Quran and Sunnah in terms of fiqh. Now we're talking about everything, ittiba'. You know, the spiritual dimensions. Exactly. What type of akhlaq did he have? What type of personality did he have? How did he speak to his wives and to his children? What type of husband was he? What type of leader imam was he? What type of warrior was he? What type of role model was he? We find, you know, spirituality, um, various concepts about spirituality that the Quran doesn't discuss about the Prophet sallallahu I mean, the Quran is not like the Gospels. It's not the biography of the Prophet sallallahu per se, right? That type of thing we find in the seerah. The seerah is hadith literature. We wouldn't have the biography of the Prophet had it not been for hadith. We wouldn't have known about his beautiful features, physical as well as spiritual and internal features. So, you know, if you look at an example like this, how would we live without the hadith? There's a hadith Qudsi. Prophet says, Allah Ta'ala says that, I am to my slave as my slave thinks of me. 
I'm with my slave when he or she remembers me. When he or she remembers me personally, I remember them personally. When he or she remembers me in a group, I remember them in a group even better than that group. This is something that gives so many people hope, you know. Allah will be to me as I think of Allah Azza wa Jal. If I believe that Allah Ta'ala can get me out of any situation, He's all-powerful, all-forgiving Allah. And, you know, He's our Raziq. He's the one who sustains me. Allah will treat you accordingly. This is the beauty of the words of the Prophet ﷺ. He was given such beauty in speech. He was given the best of akhlaq. The Quran testifies to his beautiful akhlaq. But the details are in hadith. You know, where would we be as Muslims? You know, we boast to people about the beauty that we have in Islam, the beauty that we find from hadith. So, um, you know, it would be we would be absolutely deprived and miserable without this this legacy of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So may Allah subhanahu wa taala make us of those who can actually follow the hadith, um, to follow it to the best of our ability, and be ambassadors of the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Once again, so much. It's been a uh, eye-opening uh, program and uh, uh, interesting discussion around uh, these concepts. Subhanallah. Sometimes I think we take for granted the fact that Allah has granted us to be born Muslim into this Deen of Allah subhanahu wa taala, and that we have a Deen. That is so thorough and is so pure, subhanAllah, and that we have the guidance of Rasulullah that no other ummah before us had, subhanAllah. Mm. So, how fortunate are we to be part of this? And even some of the uh, anbiya wish to be part of this ummah no. for the benefits that this ummah will reap on the day of Qiyamah, subhanAllah. Yes. Nonetheless, uh, Mona Ishad, uh, of course, uh, I want to say shukran so much, all the best uh, for the rest of the evening, inshallah, uh, and jazakallah for, for the contributions here today, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.